As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. I'm Mark Ambender from Los Angeles today. This is episode number one of what I hope will be a long and prosperous experiment in digital media. I've had a pretty interesting life. I was a journalist in Washington for 12 years, broke, broke the news and, and tried to fix it. I was a White House correspondent for National Journal, politics editor of The Atlantic, worked for The Hotline, spent four years at ABC News, was chief was chief political consultant to CBS News. And then I came out to Los Angeles and became a consultant for tech companies. And I've been spending the last couple of years writing a book, which will be published soon, later in the year, on nuclear brinksmanship and the 1983 Abel Archer war scare. But I love to talk. I love to talk to interesting people, and I love to learn new things. And uh, that's what this podcast is about. Now, today, as I sit here, we are in the aftermath of the political earthquake. That was Super Tuesday, uh, when, although not winning a majority of the uh, the delegates offered that night, Donald Trump cemented his pathway to the Republican nomination. The Republicans have two choices right now, either accept that Donald Trump will be their nominee or try to sabotage his convention. Either way, the next three months are going to be crazy in politics. Now, there's a lot of blame going around for the predicament that the Republican Party is in. It's the Republican Party's fault, mostly. 25 years of appealing to the lesser instincts of voters have created an opening for a candidate like Donald Trump to jump in and run with a vessel that has a seat that's just tailor-made for him. But I think there's a lot more to that. I think it's easy to blame Republicans and not look at everyone else, including the media, including the Democratic Party, all of our political institutions have in some sense failed a large segment of the American people. Now, those who say that, the reason for Donald Trump's rise is that a lot of Americans are stupid or nativist or racist. They simply can't abide by a black president. All of these, all of these are descriptions of the symptoms of something larger. They're not a description of the problem themselves. Our guest, Ron Fournier, is the perfect person to talk about all this because Ron has been on this wavelength for many years. Ron covered Bill Clinton's two terms as governor of Arkansas. He came to Washington, was the White House correspondent for the Associated Press, making him probably the most influential journalist in the world at that moment. He became the Washington bureau chief in 2008 after covering Washington for another 15 years. 
Uh, and then he moved to National Journal, and that's where I met him. He was an editor of mine for a while. I respect him greatly. Ron says exactly what he thinks. He's been doing that in print, holding politicians accountable for years and years and years. He's, he has pissed off the right people at the right time. I don't always agree with everything that Ron says or writes. He and I have disagreed lately about the nature of the Obama presidency in particular, but every time that he writes, I learn something new. He has an amazing, nimble mind, and he's a really honest soul. But before we begin, just wanted to give you more information about our podcast and everything else. Go to knowledgewonderland.com. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Ambender, M-A-R-C-A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R. And know that this podcast is being distributed by Acast. They have a wonderful podcast app. It's now the app that I've used, and I've used all of them. All right, enough with the damn throat clearing. Let's get to Ron Fournier now, writing for The Atlantic. I noticed something interesting about his Twitter handle, and that was the first question I asked him. Your political affiliation is that of, is disruption. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, I state that kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, for two reasons. One, uh, literally, I'm an independent. Um, I'm kind of a product of the part of Michigan I was raised in, just south of Macomb County, um, south of Eight Mile Road. Um, and I tend to be one of these voters who, over the years, um, kind of bounced around both parties and kind of vote for the, the person and the issue that drives me at the time. So I'm not, I'm not a, uh, like most Americans... Um, I really don't fit very well into either party. Um, But it's a little cheeky. Instead of just saying independent, I say disruption because disruption is what is happening um, to almost every institution in society right now because of the huge economic uh, transition we're in the middle of and the greatest technological search since the Industrial Revolution and the biggest demographic changes since the turn of the last century and and the after effects of uh, two wars and the shadowy war on terrorism, all of our institutions are either adapting or, or perishing um, and eventually uh, um, evolving or being replaced. Um, and the one, the slowest exception to that, and in many ways a complete exception, is politics and government, which has not been changed or, or to use the the buzzword of the day, it has not been disrupted. Yeah. It has not been cannibalized from within, and it has been not been cannibalized from without. An external force hasn't changed it, and the folks leading it from the inside haven't been smart enough to change it on their own. So um, that's what's happening in our politics today is, is the, we, the people, uh, Americans, are trying to force disruption on a system that refused to do so, and that's why you have... Um, a bigoted, sexist, uh, shallow, narcissist um, who's maybe running away with the Republican primary nomination and a 76-year-old socialist giving um, a, a Clinton, a very qualified Clinton, a run for her money on the Democratic Party. And I think those two examples, Trump and, and Sanders, are just the beginning of what's going to be um, a decade, decade or so of, of, of big surprises and, and massive change and i hope i'm always um part of that change is this a story with i mean is this a story with a happy ending in in the sense that you really have our imaginations run wild but it really is hard to imagine someone who is more disruptive just of the basic conventions of let's forget about institutions let's forget about policy and getting things done but just the habits of the way that politics works 
There is no one who's more disruptive than Donald Trump. I mean, everything that he does, in essence, is it's, uh, you know, to borrow Vicente Fox's word, borrowing Donald Trump's word, an FU, not just to the concept of politics, but just to the habits of politics. And it, it seems to surprise everyone constantly that when he does something and people react to it in a way that is completely opposite of the way that people normally react to it, we keep pretending to be surprised. But I don't know why we we're surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. We, we shouldn't be, and there's, there's bigger surprises coming. Let me unpack that really quickly. For one, you call them habits. I call them institutions. The way um, we... Uh, try to persuade voters and incite our our basis through advertising, that's an institution. Donald Trump is completely disrupted. Completely it's it's a moneyed away. interest is, is also what it is. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, I'm, getting, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. But he, he has shown he don't need television advertising. Matter of fact, television advertising has been a racket where right. consultants that you and I know get 10, 15, 20% of advertising that doesn't move the needle. Trump has shown that institution can and must be changed. Um, uh, whether or not you... Raising money at $1,500 increments, going into a cubicle off Capitol Hill and ca calling a bunch of folks who are only going to give you money because they expect something in their favor. Uh, Bernie Sanders is destroying that institution. It's not just a habit. It's an institution. Um, he's, he, he's unlocking a whole new way of, of financing campaigns that we kind of saw the beginnings of with um, Howard Dean. Going back to the um, – to, uh, um, how about another one? The way we talk to and message um, voters. Donald Trump with his his blunt, colloquial, sometimes vulgar, um, um, top of the head, not poll practiced, not polished. Um, that's a whole new way, um, a whole new changing of the institution of speaking to voters. Now, you could say it goes back that Ross Perot kind of did that as well. Um, but Trump is showing that you don't have to be polished and slick and practice uh, and poll tested to persuade voters and to to excite your base. We could you could talk all day yeah. about the institutions that these guys are just starting to change now. Well, that's the thing. That is that's now, true. On, 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 the, on the issue of surprise, think of what happens if Trump and Sanders lose. And an establishment candidate becomes president. The first thing that will happen is all of establishment, including the established media, will say, aha, it can't be done. See, these populists can't change things. And the status quo will declare victory. Think about how angry the, uh, the Trump and Sanders supporters are going to get and how many more people are going to fall out of politics and into the disruptive camp. I think you could argue that the only thing scarier than Donald Trump becoming president, and I think the prospect of Donald Trump becoming scary personally is is mind-numbingly scary yeah but what might be scarier is the kind of demagogue who could come behind him who doesn't have any sort of constraints on his power at all uh, meaning well, the institutional we, constraints of congress if donald trump becomes president i i think he'll become president in a climate where the where the congress will be will be more conservative i mean i don't i, I see an electorate that elects him as, as an electorate that that just because of other developments and and, uh, you're thinking too. You're thinking too narrowly. You're thinking. You're thinking red and blue. Think about any person, and I could think of people even scarier than Donald Trump. Another cycle or two down the road, who was brought into power by an angry electorate, whose fears are exploited. Um, and it's you know again, this isn't 
right, left, center. This is uh, demagoguery. When the populists so distrust its institutions and so badly um, and so easily is able to fall for somebody with a quick answer, that's how you end up with a Barcelona or a Hitler or a Chavez. And, um, you know, there's no reason why we should assume that can't happen here. And if it doesn't happen with Trump, you, 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 the anger is just going to get more exponential. Now, we can talk about the silver lining, but that, that is, that's to me the darkest road. And the darkest road actually isn't Trump becoming president. It's what happens if he doesn't. Okay, but, but, <laughs> and, 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 and the status quo doesn't change. Okay, but, but two things I want to push back. One is Bernie Sanders is a career politician. I mean, he, he he's he's representing a movement that uh, that frowns upon career politicians. And in some sense, he's a very atypical career politician. But Bernie Sanders, I mean, I, I I think Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, although they are, it, 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 I don't. Know, it seems too easy to say that they're that they're that they're just two different parts of the same whole because. Oh, they are. But Look, Bernie Sanders' different. disruption is is his disruptive message. I mean, he's. Is not really disruptive. It's I'm I'm here's oh, yeah. what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw money at it, and which people are going to pay for it. I mean, that's that's not look, terribly. Look. How revolutionary is that? He's incredibly uh, disruptive. He he is he is raising small dollars from from millions of people, and it's and he's outraising Hillary Clinton the old way. That is a disruptive tactic. Agreed. Now, I'm not comparing. Yeah. I'm not comparing. Sanders and Trump's politics. I'm not comparing Sanders and Trump as men. Um, you know, I, I think Trump, uh, my personal opinion, Bernie Sanders is a very stable, decent, um, sincere man. I wouldn't say those things personally about Donald Trump. But what, what is similar about them? They are change agents at a time that the country is craving change. And they are only two examples. They're disparate. But they're only two examples on what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain is a huge spectrum of change agents that are, gonna, that are going to come at us in our generation. And some of them could be very positive, like Barack Obama was in 2008, although he couldn't translate it as a governor. Um, and some of them could be even more negative than, than Donald Trump. Um, that this is just the beginning of a wave of change that's coming at us, and and Trump and Sanders are just small dots on that spectrum. Now, what do they share? But better, more importantly, this isn't about the candidates; it's about us, the, the people who are changing and, and are demanding change. So, what are the voters of those two men share? Well, um, almost all of them. If you did a Venn diagram, there would be a huge overlap in wanting to fix problems in this country and not being so focused outward. Yeah. There'd be a huge overlap, a huge overlap in wanting to take away corporate welfare, a huge overlap in wanting to take down big banks, a huge overlap in wanting to crack down on the governments and, 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 uh, and businesses invasion of our personal privacy. And even an overlap in, 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 um, in wariness about big government. Yes, even populists on the left are worried about what happens when government gets too big, not in the spending frame, but in the power frame. So this this country is about we the people, not the candidates. If you want to cover politics, understand the people. There's a huge and growing percentage of the public that is disconnected from its institutions, disconnected from the public, and share those five or six really game-changing desires. And until and unless our political system realigns itself and we have a party or parties um, or some other entity of government cohesion that speaks to those 
concerns, we're going to continue to have the, this kind of disruption, both very negative and both positive, because it's the, the, the desire for those five or six things are not going to go away or dissipate just because Hillary Clinton becomes president. As a matter of fact, if, if, if Trump becomes president, he's not going to be able to deliver on them. And to your point, neither will Bernie Sanders. It could even get more intense. If the person who, once again, after 2008, somebody gets in the office promising big change and doesn't deliver, what's got to happen is our political system has got to be completely reformed, completely re- blown up and rebuilt and start delivering the things that most Americans want and not just be catering to the 25 percent on the far left and the 25 percent. But let me ask, let right. me go for specifics of that, because let, let me let me let me get to one of the things that people have criticized you for this idea that, well, if if. If Barack Obama, John Boehner had sat down and, and created some sort of grand bargain um, to begin to rein in entitlements, Republicans agree to raise taxes a bit. Democrats, you know, again, are 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 finally sort of at least trimming trimming the hedges of Medicare and Social Security. That that somehow would have forestalled any of this. I don't. I don't. I don't. I. I, I it, well, when did, when did, uh, I mean that was that was that's one of your criticisms one of your core criticisms of Obama you spent a lot of time on it. Yeah, but, but when did I ever when, when did I ever say and you know me you yeah. think I'm dumb enough to say that one deal would solve all of America's political problems? It just it seems I, I, like I, not I, I not just, dumb enough. No 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 no. It's more like it's more no. like what taking apart some of the decisions that were made in the past six years um, or not made. Is there anything that could have forestalled, forestalled this? I mean, the revo- if the change that you're sensing is revolutionary change, and it is revolutionary, and, and not, so, so, for example, the so revolt no. of, of of sort of, go ahead. All right, I'll let you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Obviously, look. There's two ways to look at this. We, if you want, we can walk through the budget process, and I could point you to, to the time and the process in which the two parties could have come together and done what reasonable people in this country realize needs to be done, and that is um, uh, to, to, to rein in um, this huge debt in a way that doesn't strip away the safety net and doesn't cripple the economy. Um, that's a process issue that people can be, you know, we, we can disagree on whether or not um, the president should have or could have done it. I think he could have, and I think he should have, and I think the Republicans, there was a brief moment in which it was in their interest and they, they could have done it. But that would not have solved the problem. That, that, that is, you're talking about the symptom. Um, the, the cancer in our politics isn't the lack of a budget deal or isn't the lack of agreement on climate change or isn't the lack of agreement on gun control or any of the other issues that are important to me and you. Uh, those are The fact that they aren't getting done, those are the symptoms. The cancer What's got to be cured is a political system that is still in a governing system that that was that was built um, out of the last period of this kind of change. It was built out of the Gilded Age, the last time that we had huge economic transition from the farms to the cities, from the agriculture era to the industrial era. Huge demographic change almost overnight. Huge technological surge that made life simpler on one hand, but much more complicated on the other. For example, the automobile. You know, was revolutionary in freeing people from their homes, but things like teenage pregnancy skyrocketed overnight because of the way it changed uh, uh, the teenage years' allegiance. And what's got to be done is the institutions that, in the way of campaigning and the way of governing, that slowly came out of the Gilded Age, that came out of a period when the people woke up because of the the new media of the day, which was the muckrakers, and realized, my God, there's a handful of people who have 
total control over our lives through these things called trusts. And we're not going to take it anymore. And then you had politicians like Roosevelt and Lafayette and eventually Wilson and the other Roosevelt who who wrote that populism that from the bottom-up surge in populism, uh, wrote it to changing um, all of our institutions, including politics, that created the great American century. Well, the problem is those solutions that took a lot of time in a couple of wars <laughs> to, to, to get in place – stop being effective when the world start changing dramatically again in the 80s and 90s and in the early aughts. So uh, the only way we're going to come out of this is if we've got the, uh, the balls to recognize that this two-party system um, that is being um, – that doesn't speak to a majority of Americans um, and this government, this siloed government um, that – that um, isn't technologically savvy and isn't addressing the concerns that, that, that modern Americans have has to be blown up and replaced by better institutions. Until we do that, and it's going to take a generation if we even do it, um, these problems aren't going to be fixed. But it starts with realizing that this problem, the, 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 the system we have right now sucks. And it's not just because the Republicans are obstinate, and it's not just because the Democrats are too liberal. Well, this is, this is the Thomas Mann. This is the Norm Ornstein Thomas Mann theory. I just want to get your criticism of it because on the left, um, it's it's the dominant theory explaining the dysfunction of our times, which is the Republican Party has moved significantly to the right and become a non-governing party, and the Democratic Party remains ineffectual. Uh, and you you send something much more revolutionary and and much more deeper than that. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that analysis. I just think um, if you stop right there, all you've done is point blame, and you haven't fixed the problem. Uh, the problem is much bigger. I mean, let's let, let's get at the reasons why the Republican Party is so obstinate. Let's get at the reasons why the Democratic Party um, is so ineffectual. You know, instead of asking what's the matter with Kansas, for example, why does the Democratic Party no longer appeal to people in Kansas? Why has the Democratic Party lost the people who I grew up around with, Reagan Democrats um, outside of, uh, of Detroit, Michigan? It's because neither one of these parties is, 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 is built and is, is focused on addressing um, the concerns of most Americans. The Democratic Party has really figured out how to cater to 20, 25% of the public, and the Republican Party has figured out how to cater to the other 20, 25% of the public. We're not a 50-50 nation. We're a 25-25 political system. There's 50% or so of us who really don't fit well in either party. Now, we may every election we may get up and vote, um, and maybe even for the same party every time, but it's a, it's a choice between two evils. As you know, there's another political theory called um, – um, uh, you know, just escaping me. Neg negative partisanship. Yeah. Where we're not voting for a party or a person who we really believe in, who's aspirational. We're voting, we're voting against, against people that we hate. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's another symptom of the real problem: is our our political structure, um, our political parties, our in, our political institutions, um, don't fit the times. Let me give you a small example. So I go to Flint, not far from my home. Yeah. 
and I'm up there when all the Democrats are saying that Snyder needs to be thrown in jail. Okay, that's the Democrat solution to what happened to Flynn. Let's throw a governor who happens Republican in jail. Okay, and the Demo- and, the, and the Republicans are spending all their time trying to cover Snyder's butt. That's their solution is to try to cover Snyder's butt. Well, the first story I do is, oh well, son of a gun. This is like a lot of what's going on in this country. This is a uh, systemic uh, multi both parties, um, not just political parties, not just politics, but a completely systemic institutional collapse. Right. That you had the EPA knew about this for more than a year and covered it up. Covered it up and did nothing, right. Agency. Right. You had, you, you, you had um, uh, the State Department of, of Health and um, Environment uh, knowingly cutting corners um, to save money by not having the right solvent in the system, poisoning these people, knowing they were being poisoned and covering it up for well over a year. You had GM realizing the water was corroding its parts but not letting its its fellow members of the community know that it was poisoning their kids. So that's the first story I write that, hey, this is like Katrina. And I get the governor to, to admit this is his Katrina, and I hold the governor accountable, and I hold the, the EPA accountable. I hold the Democratic mayor accountable who tells – who tells me, you know what, even though I didn't have any power, even though it was taken away from me by the Republicans, I should have pushed harder. I should have done more. But then I realized that's not enough. All I've done is pointed fingers away a little bit differently than a Republican would or, or a Democrat would. What really is the problem with Flynn? Well, then I realized, why do we live in an age when all of the, the – that even if everything had worked right in, in Michigan – Nobody outside of the governments would have known there was a problem with that water for at least several months. That because of institutions and um, way of governing that go back to the 1920s, public health care tests are kept private until they're peer-reviewed, until they're, they're internally vetted, until they're shared with other agencies, until they're shared with other governments. And there's a long process that goes through because we can't let the public know that there might be a false positive because the people will panic. So we have this very form of government that, that, you know, made sense a long time ago, but in this day and age, why don't, why isn't as soon as a public health care result is back, why isn't it immediately made public? Why isn't it immediately put on a database? And why is that database open sourced? Well, it's because it's not in the interest of either party to even think like that. What's in the both party is to spend three years having hearings, uh, 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 locking public officials in jail, casting blame, and seeing money off of it. There's been a lot of money raised off of Flint. Even if everything had worked how it, how, how it was supposed to, people still would have been poisoned the Flint. Right. That's the kind of change we have to have. And when you have that kind of change, one or both of these parties is going to go away, probably the Republican first. And the, and, and, and the only party that's going to survive, if either party is going to survive, is going to look completely different than it does now. The, the not just the not just the the demographic coalitions, which which themselves are sort of increasingly, I mean, why it, it, it's weird. I hear people talk about demographic coalitions, but demographic demographic coalitions goes back to a time when when um, there was a was a real strong correlation between um, demography and support for a party. Now there's just going to be, I think, correlations. I mean, I, I there are demographic cleavages. cleavages there are. Groups and societies that will be disadvantaged continually and distinctively by prejudice and institutional racism, but it seems to me that just the way that we we we've canonized some of these demographic divisions um, 
is, uh, is, is not a very helpful way to look into the future of what political parties are going to be. Um, exactly. Cause you're, yeah. That's a great point, Mark, because you're canonizing demographies um, that exist today. Yep. Let, let's, let's look ahead 20 years. Let's look at the generation that's going to inherit our politics. It's, it's you know, the generation that's called the millennials. So they're shaped by uh, – they were raised in a time of um, two wars and part of a bigger, shadowy, new form of warfare – um, a huge economic transition, not just the, the downturn in the, in the recession, but a huge economic tumultuous transition that's leaving a lot of people behind. A huge demographic change. Um, the kindergarten class of America right now is majority minority. And huge technological change. Now, what's the only other generations that were forged of those four things, or at least three of those four things? The greatest generation, Lincoln's generation, the, the generation that elected Lincoln, and the founding generation. So about 80 years, society has such seismic shifts that we produce generations that have to go, that are raised during that kind of change. And what happens is that they're shaped by their times, and they become what is what are known as civic generations, generations that, generally speaking, want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And it's because when you grow up at a time like this, like my kids, yeah. You're more pur- you're more purpose driven. You watch three thousand people melt on your TV in in New York when you were a little kid. Um, you want purpose in your life, in your workforce, in the politicians you vote. You want man, you want purpose in the coffee you drink, and in the products you buy. You're you're impatient for change. You're used to pushing a button and the whole world coming at your fingertips immediately, exactly how you want it. That makes you now it drives us older people like me crazy. But it makes it's a special breed of cat that might that might. Not not put up with two ineffectual parties. Matter of fact, how about the number two? Why would a generation that, unlike me, I had to buy 13 songs to get the one Bob Seger song I liked? They got 25,000 songs on their hip from you know 20,000 different artists. They're choice junkies, and, and, and they expect things exactly how they want it, not the way some institutions give it to them. They're much less ideological than our generation is. They're much more pragmatic. So th- those are traits that they share with other great civic generations. Now, the only big distinction between them and the greatest generation and Lincoln's generation and the founding generation is unlike those three civic generations, they, right now they don't see government as a way of doing good. So what are they doing? If they're not doing good things in government, well, they are incredible social entrepreneurs. And when Clinton said in 1993 there's, nothing that's, there's no problem in America that's not being solved somewhere in America, he was ahead of his time because government wasn't ready to find those solutions to bring in the scale, and people didn't have the power to do so. Now government is even less equipped to find those solutions and bring in the scale. But we as a people, especially as millennials, are creating these solutions and radically connecting with one another and bringing them to the scale, and they're doing some remarkable things that normally, under normal circumstances, would be part of government. Now, I think they'll eventually evolve into new forms of government and new institutions inside and outside of politics. But the only thing that makes me feel good about politics is when you really dig in on the data on millennials, you realize that these kids aren't going to put up with the kind of crap that we argue over. And they are, without us even realizing it, already building solutions to big problems that a functional government would. And maybe they're they're the seeds of what are going to be the next institutions and the next real revolution. I think personally, you know, Sanders isn't going to be able to deliver this the way he's talking about in one election. 
Um, it would have been interesting if if Barack Obama had been able to transform some of what he did on one day in November of 2008, a bottoms-up, purpose-driven, very millennial-type campaign. If he could have transferred that into government, he wasn't able to. I think he gave up as soon as he got here. Um, but the fact of the matter, it's not something you can wave a magic wand, to quote my critics, and do overnight. It's going to take a generation to do it. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. And I think my kid's generation has what it takes to do it. Let me, I'm looking at a picture now of a smiling uh, 12-year-old boy with George W. Bush, um, your son, uh, Tyler, and I'm looking at, uh, and it's on the webpage um, of one of uh, the the many large national organizations devoted to um, autism, and I know you're going to have a lot to say about autism in the next couple months. It's a really interesting time, but I'm curious, along the lines of just what we've been talking about, um, what's the, what's the millennial approach to dealing with, with this issue? And I, I don't say issue to kind of marginalize it. I just, you know, it's, um, how do we, how do we, how, what is the, what is the proper role of government? What's the proper role of existing institutions? How should we, how should we talk about it? And for those of us who want to do something, um, whether it's to remove the stigma associated with autism uh, or just learn more about it, what do we do? Wow. That's a long, hard question for... No, you know, no, but, but I never thought of connecting the dots between something's very personal to me. My, my son, uh, Tyler, um, has Asperger's syndrome, a high-functioning form of autism, and I've never thought of the dots connected between that and what I was just yammering about, but, but you're right, there is a line. First, I'm curious, what, what website are you seeing that on? Uh, it's the, uh, the opt, it's the, um, it's, uh, isn't it Autism Speaks? Am I? It's... Yeah, I didn't know they had it on the website already. Yeah. Well, just, it's just a picture of you and it, it, it's a link to your, just a, a link to, um, a small piece that you wrote before, I think, to the national, uh, to the national oh, okay. journal piece. Yeah. Well, I got a book coming 
out about my son in April, and Autism Speaks is actually one of the partners, and they've done a really nice video with the two of us, and it's going to be on the website um, in March. But anyhow, well, here's it's interesting because autism um, is a condition um, that um, has evolved in the last few years, and in, in kind of in a way that we were just talking about government, but I never thought about it. Um, if you would ask Hillary Clinton, and me for that matter, and most people 10 years ago about autism, we would have talked about that's that's a, a disease or that's a condition. It's not a disease, by the way, but we would have said disease that needs to be combated, which is literally the use word that she used back then. It was the word most people used. And Autism Speaks is a um, institution that at the time was primarily dedicated to finding a cure for autism. Um, even today, most of its money is poured into research to try to unlock the, the genome um, in ways that might help um, treat or even cure people with autism. If you think about it, that's a very paternalistic way to look at it, that we the people, whether you're a state senator from New York or you're a, a, an organization based in New York called Autism Speak, we are going to try to cure this affliction for you. Give us a lot of money, um, uh, give us a lot of data, uh, give us your backing, and we in turn will, hey, pull all those resources together, and we will cure, we will combat this situation for you. Um, that's a very old form, very, you know, 20th century government kind of way of looking at it, right? So what has happened right. since then is you have groups like um, um, ASIN, which is the, the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, which is founded, I believe, about 10 years ago. One of the co-founders is a guy I just had lunch with named Ari Neiman. Um, Ari is um, has autistic. Is autistic. Um, he's one. Uh, he's, he's a leader of this group that is a group of autistic people, millions and millions of autistic people, thanks largely to the internet, uh, have able, been able to come together and create their own organization. Um, because what they are demanding, what they want, is support um, to help them um, um, not only live better lives with autism, but. But, but to help society realize that because of the way these young men and women are wired, they bring certain um, attributes to society that we would otherwise be denied. And the world would be a lesser place if you could somehow cure um, people like my son, who at least is high-functioning. I know it's a different issue for, for parents and people who are lower on the spectrum. Okay. If you, could, if you could give my son a pill to, to, uh, to cure himself of Asperger's, he wouldn't take it, and his mom and dad wouldn't want him to take it because his condition is, makes him the special guy that he is, and he's able and he's bringing society some skills and attributes that society would be other otherwise denied. So the whole autism um, community and and um, cause has been benefited by the fact that we still have organizations like Autism Speak doing their great things. And on top of that, we also have this ground-up, bottoms-up, purpose-driven, people-driven organization and others like it that are made up of people with autism. And you know, there's been a lot of conflict between the two groups, and there's a lot of division in the community. But I think it's going to eventually move to an accommodation where both sides understand each side better. For example, people like my son realizing that there's other folks with autism who need or want to care and people on the other side realizing we can't put all our money just in research. We have to support people who, who um, are, are going to go through the rest of their life with autism. 
and then so then to close the loop on, on your question, sorry to babble so much today. No, you but have Hillary it's a, Clinton. Yeah. You have, you have Hillary Clinton who went from ten years ago saying we have to combat it to she, you go back and look at her proposal that she put out about a month ago. It's a remarkable um, document, not only because for its its um, depth and 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 um, really you know, her showing her understanding of the community, but it's also broad. She is pushing for more money for research. She's also pushing for more money and and more resources um, and more understanding for people who should and want to live the rest of their life with autism. So you, you could call it a flip-flop or you could call it an, an, an evolution. And it's whether, whatever you call it, I happen to think it's a legitimate evolution, but whatever you call it, it's only because a group of people yeah. aided by radical connectivity – have have forced a change in the conversation from the bottom up. And well, that's fact, that's what I wanted to say. I mean, that's yeah. Pop, go ahead. Pop, 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 in effect, they're populists, right? Who, who have targeted this one issue, and, and we're going to see more and more of that, and it's going to radically change all of our institutions. And in the po- case, the politicians who years, go ahead. I just want to say that they, yeah, they've, they've changed the institution of autism, and to the point I think you're about to make. They force politicians to look at the issue differently. The politicians who are more amenable and malleable. And surround themselves with people who are who have these perspectives will be the politicians who might thrive or at least survive in this new revolutionary era, in some ways. Right. Yeah. And I, see, I, I I've, I've been the mind that people are, are the idea of changing your mind on issues. The public, especially these millennials, are going to be more and more open to. Right. Just as long as you're doing it authentically. If right. You show that you're. You know, look at all the politicians who have changed on gay rights, for example. Well, that boy, that's an issue that was driven by that generation. And and they also, not only are they forced to change, but they're more open to their leaders and their elders changing changing their minds as well. And you're right. The politician who keeps their mind open, who's willing to listen to the other side, who's willing to find some accommodation, um, um, is going to be the politician that not only survives, but will be the politicians who force the changes that we have to make. That's why I get so mad, whether it's... Barack Obama or John Boehner, when they dig their heels in and and re- refuse to get anything done and point to figure at the other side of the table, because there's always got to be a way to do the right thing. And if, if not, if there if there are structural uh, problems that are stopping us from doing the better thing, then blow up the structural issues. Ron, I want to uh, I want you to come back once this podcast A exists, B has an audience, and C you have. <laughs> You have a book to sell, um, and, and I want to. I really want to, and, and I'm going to do my research, and then I'm going to present the case that Barack Obama was a successful president, and I want you to argue against that case because I know that you um, that you argue against that case, or at least you were seen well, uh, as being as as being an avatar of the argument against that. Um, you know what? I, I would yeah. only argue if, if, if your case would he's been a great president. I, I've never argued that he wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think, I think, he's, been a, I think yeah. he's been a good president. Okay. Um, I think he's a good. I think he's a good man. Um, I think he's. I think his his. Um, and I've written all this. I, I yeah. think his his heart is in the right place. I think he's a sincere guy. Um, um, my politics personally line up closer to the Obamas than they would to Donald Trumps. <laughs> um, but I expect greatness out of political leaders, especially those who. Um, promise great things and who are given the privilege to lead 
through times that require greatness. He could have been a great president. We need a great president now. And and he wasn't. Was it all his fault? No. Was it because he's a jerk, you know, or a, not a patriot or not an American? No, 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 no. Um, but I do think that he caved much too quickly to the forces of um, the status quo. And we need somebody who is going to who's going to blow away the status quo and do what he did on one day, but do it for eight years. Now, I, I want to talk to you about that um, again on a subsequent edition. But there's also one tiny thing that I want to I want to go over with you, um, okay. which is be which which has to do with the fact that. You know, you you were an editor of mine. You know my work. Um, you know, I had a Gawker piece come out uh, what a couple weeks ago now that used a fragment of an email from a conversation with one of Hillary Clinton's um, longtime aides, Philippe Rhinus. Made it seem as if I was trading favorable coverage for access to a speech. Um, the I mean, the, you know, with, I've had my say at least as much as I'm going to say about it, and. I remember mostly what happened, and I'm fairly comfortable that what I did was within keeping with the general conventions of things. Um, but aside from uh, whether or not at the time, seven years ago, I did the right thing or I didn't do the right thing, um, it reminds me, or at least it, it, it says to me that the world of journalism that I was brought up into is not the world of journalism that exists now in so many ways. I mean, back in 1998, the LA Times had 10,000 employees. It has 1,000 today. I mean, there are more people who are covering inter news internationally for BuzzFeed than than for the entire Tribune company. The, the lines that we've drawn are not the lines that exist anymore. People have this, this enormous mistrust of the transactional journalism that it appeared that I was caught doing, although again, I'm, you know, I, I, um, I, my, my own recollection of that moment is, and Philippe backs me up, is that, you know, we, we had a conversation. I said, said the word muscular, and anyway, it doesn't matter. It matters. I'm still, you can tell, you can tell. It's, it, it bothers me a little bit because when someone questions your integrity in a way that makes it hard to respond, uh, it, you know, it, it sticks a little bit. But, um, but just in the past five or six years, I mean, there's been enormous disruption to the to the to the profession that 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 you that you chose and and became a and I use the words legendary not to refer to an age but simply refer to a level of accomplishment. Um, but we we I mean, what when people ask you whether they should go into journalism today or how they should do it, what do you tell them? My daughter works um, for my for the for the for a guy named John Woman who brought me from Arkansas to the AP in Washington. He's now the publisher of the Detroit News, and my daughter is a journalist in Detroit. Um, and I was a little worried when she she decided very late um, in her well after college that she wanted to go into journalism. And I was kind of worried about it. Um, but on the narrow question, my answer to her and to other young people is: if you like finding crap out and sharing it with people, and you like being able to um, stand up to powerful people and make them uncomfortable and hold them accountable, it's still a great profession to go into, especially if you like that second part, if you really like punching powerful people in the nose who deserve it. Um, and don't worry about where the industry is going, because even if um, you find yourself on the wrong end of too many layoffs, 
um, or in a company that, that falls apart, even if you get caught up in the grind, the economic grind of the industry, learning how to take complicated uh, matters, understand them, and explain them in written form is a skill that is getting more and more valuable, not less and less. You may not always be able to make money in a newsroom doing that, but you will never starve if you learn how to dig up information and share it that's complicated and share it with people. Um, so if you love doing that, which I do, I, I could cover um, a, uh, um, school boards tomorrow and, and, and have just as much fun as covering the wire out the White House, especially if I got a chance to make the, um, the head of the school board um, squirm. Sweat a little bit, yeah. Um, go ahead and do it. Um, um, but you're right. The, 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 um, the industry is changing and, and being cannibalized and being disrupted um, in a lot of ways that I'm not sure um, where it's going to end up. And it, it worries me as a citizen because it was, again, it was the muckrakers who created a new journalism model that's right. now dying. Ida Tarbell, right. Yeah. And, you know, Ida, you know, Ida that's, she's one of my heroes. Lincoln heroes. Stephen, Ida right Tarbell, yeah, yeah. She, she didn't have the right to vote yet, and she, and she wrote she her story that took on, took on Standard Oil, and yeah. It, it, right. It's and an it amazing piece her, of journalism. Of Mc... Right, it was incredible. And if it wasn't for her and the rest of that gang, most of them based at McClure's, including Wright Lincoln Stevens, there would not have been a cause for which T.R. and Wilson and Roosevelt and Lafayette and Bryant, there would not have been a cause for them to do their great things. Um, that you could argue we need that issue and we need somebody bringing it to light before a next great president could could step in and and if it's not going to be journalism you know what is our equivalent of the muckrakers i don't see it then um it's going to have to be an, a, another institution maybe it's one that hasn't been uh, developed yet but to go back on your thing can i say a couple things? yeah please do i'm curious when you saw that what did you think i well, mean first, I, you... um, I felt i felt um i thought of you someone who um you know we did work together in a newsroom and 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 we would not have worked together in a newsroom if i thought you were a, a, a uh, insincere, um, transactional, um, access-selling journalist because there's nothing I despise more. Um, so just personally, because I know you, um, I was able to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I understand why many people won't or can't, but I could. But then I thought of myself. I was in a very similar situation. Um, and and uh, um, I know what you're going through. You might recall um, when Pat Tillman died. Yeah. Um, or was killed in Afghanistan, I was um, working at the Associated Press covering the White House, and we had heard that the story that the White House was putting out um, might be false, that they might be exaggerating. And we all kind of felt that they were probably exaggerating it because that's what the Bush White House did. So I was trying to get out of my sources um, a feeling um, or a sense or even evidence that um, – you know, I was pressure testing their story, and I was I was trying to get information that that might confirm. Our, it turned out to be true, but our gut and our early information that that the story was hyped. And one of the people I emailed was Carl Rove, who at at the time was somebody who um, um, I wrote or talked to quite a bit because he was a senior White House official. Um, and I do what you know. One of the many tactics reporters use is flattery. Depending on who you're trying to get the information out, you push whatever button you think might work. Some of them is you're tough. Some of it you threaten. Some of them you you stroke their egos. Some you flatter them. Some you you chat them up. Some you say 
um, do this for the cause of your company or your boss or your country, whatever, whatever, you know, you know you're, you're basically, you're selling yourself as a, as a source reporter, however you can get the information out that serves your readers. Right. In this case, it was our sense that the Bush White House was lying. Um, well, with, with Carl, it's, it's flattery. Um, and so I wrote a very flowery letter, email, nothing in it was insincere that I don't, uh, uh, I don't believe in, including talking very, um, heroically about Tillman, who I still get chills thinking about what he did, giving up a football career to fight for our country. Um, trying to get Carl to engage on the topic. It didn't work. Carl did not engage. Um, oh, and I, I ended it with us with it, which with at the time was a salutation. I ended a lot of my notes with keep up the fight. You know, that was something I did when you and I were working together. I ended a lot of my emails with onward. Yeah. Well, then onward. it was keep up the fight. Right. Well, years later, um, about three or four years later, about three or four years after Carl stopped talking to me because of how hard I subsequently wrote about Iraq and Katrina, um, that email leaked. And without any context, it looked like I was sucking up to Carl. And some people took the keep up the fight as me saying keep up the fight in Iraq, even though Tillman died in Afghanistan and even though I wasn't um, – in the, in the context of the email, I wasn't saying keep up the fight even in Afghanistan. Right. Um, it was a salutation. Now, I can see why people um, um, misinterpreted it because it starts with the folks. And again, this goes back to what we're usually talking about. We have people who, who um, wear red and blue jerseys professionally, and it's their job to do whatever they can to demonize the other side. So when um, liberals see this email, it's a way to um, – uh, um, delegitimize the Associated Press and Republicans do this as well. That's one reason why the media has such poor trust ratings. One is we're not performing at our best because of the the, uh, the financial issues you, you mentioned but also because both sides are when it serves their best interests yeah. they do everything they can to make us look bad. Yeah. Well in this case that email was used to make it look like I was a Carl Rove, George Bush, sycophant. Now, the fact of the matter is, when I was dealing with Carl, I respected him. He, he you know, he guy served his served his country, worked hard for Bush. I had a lot of respect for George Bush as a person and as a man. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to trade. Um, uh, I don't need access to these people to do, do their jobs. There's plenty of ways to me get my information. I'm not going to trade on it. I'm certainly not going to advise um, a government to go to war. Um, but that's how it was interpreted, and I so I know how you feel. It did sting. It still stings when people throw it at me. But I know, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to be confident um, that that um, you're doing everything every day to find out as much about what's going on in the government that the government's holding back that you possibly can. And I know over the course of time, there's nobody who um, covered the the Bush and Clinton and Obama presidencies more critically than I did, but hopefully also with a healthy amount of respect because, you know, you don't want to be um, so cynical that you're, um, that you're, that, that, that you're, that you're, that you're helping to undermine the public's trust in government either. And that is you a, try to be as objective as you can. That's a really, so, really hard balance to strike, long, but long, yeah. It is, but long way of going, I, I, you know, if I could write that email differently now, I, I sure as hell yeah. would. I, I, I try to be more aware now that everything 
uh, and although I know I don't do a good job of this, but I try to be more aware that everything I'm, I'm writing could eventually be public and distorted. And that is the first Knowledge Wonderland podcast. I'm Mark Amador. Thank you so much for joining, for listening. Uh, I hope you learned something from Ron. Please follow Ron on his Twitter account, Ron underscore F-O-U-R-N-I-E-R. Once again, follow me on Twitter at Mark Ambender, M-A-R-C-A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R. Sounds like I've rehearsed that a bunch of times. Sounds like I had to go back and record that because I managed to spell my own name wrong. That's what, that's what it sounds like. Knowledgewonderland.com is our website. There's uh, a lot more there than, than just a simple podcast, but that's where you can find the latest information about our podcasts. Continue to download our podcasts from the iTunes podcast store, from everywhere where podcasts can be downloaded. Acast, A-C-A-S-T, is the company that is distributing and hosting our podcasts, and I thank them greatly. Please download their app. It's the app that I use. I think it's the best podcast app out there at the moment. The podcast was produced by Tenshi Hikari. Music by Tintin V. Find out more at Tintin V on Facebook. Hey, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.